Okay, guys, you can go ahead and uh, wrap up your conversations here. Yes, I love it. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read our scripture for us. If you, if we, I love it. Guys, I love the chattiness, right? This is what, this is what we missed for so long. So maybe next week we'll just schedule in a 10 or 15 minutes of it and we can just bro out here in the middle of the service. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to start this morning for us by, by reading our scripture. So uh, today we are in Philippians 4, and we are in verses 4 through 9. So uh, let, me, let me read this for us. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonable reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Pray with me. Father, we, we are desperate for your peace, God. And we ask that, uh, that this morning as we study your word, that you would be speaking to us about what peace is, what it looks like in our lives, and how you're inviting us uh, to practice it and to live out of it. Lord, we pray that you would be making us into a community of peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be looking at kind of three parts to this passage. The first thing we're going to look at is what this passage teaches us and what scripture as a whole teaches us about peace. We have a lot of misunderstandings about that in our world. So we're going to talk about what is this biblical idea of peace that Paul is talking about. Then we're going to talk about the promises of this passage. What does Paul promise us here? And then finally, what are the practices that Paul commends to us? Right, that he commands us to engage in as we walk in this practice of peace. So if you're a note-taking person, that's three Ps, right? Peace, promises, and practices. And what the Bible teaches about peace, that's so important because we live in an anxious age, don't we? And we started this sermon series by talking about this survey that the CDC has been doing of Americans kind of over the course of the pandemic. And... Uh, as of the first week of June, okay, in this survey that they do, 25% of all Americans express symptoms of clinical anxiety. 25%. For people that are uh, from the ages of 18 to 29, that's 38% of people. And it goes down a little bit by kind of each age bracket, 31% for 30 to 39-year-olds, 28% for 40 to 49-year-olds. It kind of keeps decreasing. But what that tells us is that anxiety is a huge problem for us, isn't it? And like we talked about uh, at the beginning of this sermon series, that's just not like, that's not a problem out there in the world. That's true about us. 
that we are people who experience really acute anxiety, don't we? And there are a lot of solutions that are on tap for your and my anxiety. This world has no shortage of, of tools and practices and tips and tricks that it recommends that we would put into, into our lives uh, to practice peace. There's this app called Calm. Are any of you practitioners with it? Any of you use this app? Okay. It provides guided meditations, among many other things, including podcasts and bedtime stories that are read by Harry Styles and Matthew McConaughey to help you fall asleep. So uh, this app recently was raising capital, okay? And with the new round of capital that they raised as investment in their business, the app, which has 4 million users, is v was valued at $2 billion. Curing your anxiety or alleviating your anxiety is big business. There's a lot of money in it. It's because we're desperate, aren't we? Desperate to have our anxiety relieved. And it's easy for us to read this passage and to think, ah, oh, finally, the Christian answer, right? Maybe we'll build our own app and call it, I don't know what we would call it, peace, you know? That was supposed to be a joke, but I'll work on that a little bit, I guess. Uh, and it's easy to look at this and think, oh, Paul is giving us his life hacks, right? His tips and tricks for how as Christians we should be dealing with anxiety. And like they're going to be better than everybody else's. Okay, that's not it. That's not what Paul is doing here. And it's important that we understand that because if that's what we think Paul is doing, eventually what will happen to us is we will be disappointed and disenchanted with, the, with God. Because we, we will think that he's promised us something that he hasn't promised us. What we've got to talk about is what scripture teaches us about peace. We've got to orient ourselves to what scripture teaches about peace. And what the scriptures would teach us about peace is that our desire for peace, our desperation for peace, that our problem is not that that desire is too strong, it's that that desire is actually far too weak. That we are asking for far too little if all we are asking for is to have our mood changed. Because isn't that what so often we desire? We just want emotional homeostasis. I just want to feel calm all the time. I want to feel better. And for me to feel better means I'm not going to be scared and I'm not going to be anxious. And if that could happen, then I would be fine. But when we think like that, wh what, we are, what we're believing is that the problem in our lives is our mood. Maybe we have a, like a, neurical, a neurochemical issue if we're going to be reductionistic about it. And if we could just address that, whatever we can use to address that, that is what we need. And that's where we're putting our hope for salvation. Because then I will be saved if I can just get rid of this anxiety or fear. But scripture actually tells us that the problem is way deeper than our mood. The problem is our world. The problem is that we live in a world that is in rebellion against God. That as people, we are in rebellion against God. And that that rebellion means that there's not peace in our world. 
there's conflict between ourselves, in, in and of ourselves. There's conflict with us and other people. There's conflict with creation. There are actually spiritual forces of darkness that are at work in the world against the Lord that are in rebellion against him. And that makes this world a fearful place, doesn't it? It's scary because there are bad things that can happen. There's also fear that enters our lives because we know at a deep level that we are in rebellion against God. And I gotta, we gotta talk about just, just a quick note on rebellion, okay? In our culture, when we think about rebellion, we think about rebellion as a good thing, right? Who are the good guys in Star Wars? The rebels, right? That's in our national identity. That's what we're about to celebrate next weekend with America's birthday is our rebellion against, our, uh, against the tyrant King George, right? That we always associate, it's in our songs and our art and our music that rebellion is always a good thing. And, and there's a little bit of truth to that because we live in a fallen, broken world. Because what's true in our world is that all of our authority is to some degree defiled by the fall, is broken by the fall. All of our authority has pieces in it that are not good. And and we can always find something to justify our rebellion. But what that clues us in on is the fact that we are living in a broken world. Ultimately, the rebellion that we find ourselves uh, embroiled in is a rebellion against not a God who is, who is against us, but that a God, a God who loved us and designed us and created us for relationship with himself the ultimate authority, but is a good authority. And it's hard for us to imagine that, but that's true about God. And that when we, when we find ourselves in rebellion against him, we're in this place where we actually have alienated ourselves from the person who desires peace for us the most. And yet we find ourselves unable to get back to him. And so living apart from him, right, it provides us with no roadmap for peace, uh, and yet we still are in rebellion. That's our problem. Not our mood. And this is important to recognize because what it clues us in on is that even if you are able to get to the point where you're able to regulate your mood to a place of like ultimate calm, that is a false peace unless you are also experiencing peace with God. And the scriptures warn us about that. It warns us against people who call out peace, peace when there is no peace. It warns us against people who would heal our wounds lightly, who would say, if you can just reach uh, this emotional state of homeostasis, then everything will be fine. No, the problem is much deeper than that. It's our rebellion against God. But the beauty of the gospel, right, is that in our rebellion, God has come for us not because we have finally laid down our arms, no, that he came for us in the midst of our act of rebellion, that it was actually our rebellion that put him on the cross, but it was in that very place that he showed his great love for us, that it was in his death and his resurrection that he brought peace between us and God, is what Ephesians 2 tells us, that he is our peace. And so this ultimate problem of our alienation, our rebellion with or our rebellion against God has now been taken care of. 
that what we experience now in our relationship with God is not us as, as rebels, but that we're children that are beloved by our Father. That's true about us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what that means is that we also live in a world that is still in rebellion. That there are still pocket pockets of our own hearts that are rebellious, aren't, th- aren't there? That at times we live like rebellious children. It doesn't change our Father's disposition toward us, right? But that's true. And we experience that out in the world against the evil that's set against us. The rebellion is still active and ongoing. And that's important. We have to acknowledge that. But the promise of the scriptures, right, is that one day, and we've talked about this even in, a st- in, even in Philippians, the promise is that there's going to be a day where Jesus comes again. And that when Jesus comes again, what he's going to do is he's going to bring a kingdom of peace, that he's going to be, he's our prince of peace. But when he, when he comes the second time, he's not going to come on a cross, he's going to come on a white horse with a sword at his side and he will be a prince of peace. And what he will do is establish a kingdom of peace where all of the rebellion is finally put down. And that those who have resisted God are, and, and all of the evil that's arrayed against him is excluded from his kingdom. And so what, what we will experience is the reign of the Prince of Peace. So that's the future that we're looking forward to. And that's important. Because what we're doing right now is we're living in the middle of those things. That God has made peace between us and himself, and yet we live in a world that is still in rebellion. And so we're a people who are waiting for our world to be set right by our king. That's God's prescription for peace. That's God's, pres- that's God's prescription for peace. And so what Paul is talking about here, we have to put it in that context because that helps us understand that this isn't just about mood alleviation. This is about us engaging in the spiritual reality of what God has already accomplished for us and the promise of what God will do for us. And he's showing us, he's teaching us, Paul's teaching us, how do we practice that in our everyday lives? what he's already accomplished and the hope of what's to come. So what are the promises? What are the things that that Paul promises us, that God promises us through Paul in this passage? Well, we see it first in verse seven, okay? It says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? Give me some of that. And what Paul is talking about here, he's using a military metaphor like he does all throughout Philippians, right? That the peace of God would guard our hearts. This word guard is a military word. And kind of the the picture is uh, of a military, at a a military camp, right? When you would be in kind of campaigning against an enemy, what would happen is is before you had drones that always knew what was going on, you would post sentinels around your camp, right? And these people would, would be on the edge of the, of the encampment and they would be on the lookout for enemies. That was a way that they would protect your camp. Actually, this, this job was so important in the Roman military that if a, if a sentinel or a sentry was found to be sleeping on the job, that was it. They killed him. Because, because they knew that people staying on guard was vital for the success and for the well-being of the, of the troop. And what Paul is saying, and think about Paul writing this. Paul, like we've talked about, he's chained to a Roman guard under house arrest, right? So he's writing this or dictating it to someone, and he's looking at this guy that he's chained to. 
and he says, the peace of God is going to guard your hearts. It's gonna, it can stand sentinel over your hearts. And not the peace of God like this abstract thing. The peace of God is uh, the Holy Spirit that Christ has put in our hearts to be with us always, to manifest his presence to us. It's the Holy Spirit that is with us guarding our hearts and our minds. That's the promise of this passage. That's not, and when it says it, it surpasses understanding. That's not like illogical or, or mystical. That's the promise of Christ being at work in you through the Holy Spirit. And that promise is echoed again in verse nine. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, what this is not saying is that somehow like if you don't practice these things, God is not with you and so you practice them when you like get more of God, right? We talk about that a lot. That is not what Paul is saying here. But, but what he is saying is that, is that it's possible for us to live as if the promises of God aren't true for us. It's possible for us to live as if God is not with us. And there are these practices here that Paul commends to us, and he says, as you practice these things, what it helps you do is to take hold of the gospel that has taken hold of you. And that's true in verse 7. Right before verse 7, Paul's giving all of these instructions, and he's saying if you pray this way and think this way, what it's going to help you do is ground and hold on to the peace of God in your life. You see it in verse 9. He has uh, what you have learned and received and what you've heard and seen. These are kind of two different ways of talking about the work of Christ or the, the w- about the journey of being a believer. What you've heard and seen has to do with belief. It's like mental assent to the things that Paul has taught the Philippians. But then he talks, about, excuse me, that's what you've learned and received. Yeah, and then he talks about what you've heard and what you've seen. He's saying what you have watched me live out in front of you the example that I've shown you in Christ. The example that you have in Christ. He says, practice those things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is saying, live out of all that I've written to you about. Live out of all that you know that is yours in Christ. Let those things mature you. See, what Paul is giving us here is not a prescription. He's not like a, not like a hairy doctor who's like writing a script for you to, to fix your issue with a pill. Most doctors would tell you that's not how most things work anyway. This isn't Paul writing a prescription. This is Paul writing a referral, okay? And what Paul's doing is he's writing a, a, refer- a referral to a physical therapist. He's telling you these are the exercises that I want you to engage in that are gonna strengthen you for the journey that's ahead of you. And these practices aren't to enable us to stand on our own, but to be dependent on God. Psalm 144 talks about this. It's one of my favorite psalms. I'm just going to read a little bit of it to a little bit of it to us. David says, "Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my finger fingers for battle." Right? That David is aware of the fact that God is strengthening him to engage in combat against his enemies. But then he says, he is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge who subdues people under me. 
that ultimately the way that David is strengthened, the way that we are strengthened to do battle in our world is knowing who the God is that we flee to and who is our refuge. I think about that in my own life. You guys have heard me talk about this before, but that was two and a half years ago, three years ago, I experienced a, a panic attack for the first time in my life. And uh, if you don't know what that is like, praise the Lord, because they are horrible. I remember kind of it happening to me and thinking, it, it feels like your, your grip on reality is suddenly like, like this. What is, what is happening to me? I, I remember thinking, I, I, don't, I don't even know what to do. All the things that I usually use as tools to bring me peace, like I would try to pray, and closing my eyes made me more afraid. Like, I don't know what to do opening the scriptures, my mind, I can't even like read what's on the page. I'm so untethered from, it feels like I'm so, my anchor to what is real in the world has been cut. And now I'm just being tossed around. Is it, do I call an ambulance? Like, what do I do? It's terrifying. And after that experience, the fear of the fear of that panic attack was with me for, s- for so long. And a lot of you know what that's like. It stalks you. And I, sh- and I share that to say that the place of that panic has been uh, a place where Jesus has met me again and again. And that what he has done is not taken it all away, but that in that place, uh, God desires to meet us in our fears. And what he does not do there is make us so strong that we never experience fear again. But actually the journey is to with Christ is to understand how weak and dependent I actually am on my Father. And that where I find my strength is not in myself. That was what the panic attack was all about. (laughs) We'll talk about that later. But the journey afterwards has been realizing, Lord, what does it mean for me to actually find my strength and my dependence in you? And that's what Paul is training us in here. What he's inviting us to is a journey of drawing near to our Jesus through these practices and letting him be our strength, that he would meet us in our weaknesses. Not that it would keep out the fear, but that it would allow us to see fear for the gift that it is, which is an invitation into walking closely with Jesus. So let's talk about these practices. I want to start, uh, let's start where it talks about prayer. Okay, this kind of starts in verse 6. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In three different ways here, Paul is emphasizing the importance of you telling God what you want. Do you know what you want? Do you know the desires of your heart? Right, what we're talking about here is not you kind of like running through your wish list with God. This is an invitation for you to slow down and ask the Lord, Lord, what is it that, I, what is, it that is on my heart that I want? And to bring those things to him, which is an incredibly vulnerable thing, isn't it? to admit to yourselves the hopes and the dreams that you keep buried and you carry with you deep inside? Jesus is saying, I want you to bring those things to me. And if you have trouble knowing what they are, I want to I want to give you a tip. I guess this is a, a part of the tips and tricks section, okay? Uh, a, t- a tip? 
is to ask yourself, oh, where am I anxious? What, am I, what makes me afraid? Because fear as an emotion is a gift that lets us know when something that we value is threatened. And sometimes what is threatened is our hope for the future, right? It's these things that we desire, that we're planning for, that we're, that we're hoping for, maybe even that we're pinning our hopes on, and that when, when it seems like that may not come to pass, what that often produces inside of us is anxiety, right? And what Paul's inviting us to do here is to kind of p- pull the thread and say, what is it in my heart that I'm asking for? And what I love that Paul does here is he doesn't shame that. He doesn't say, oh, look, see, you want a thing that's not Jesus, so that's your problem. He doesn't say, that's your problem. No, he honors the hopes and the dreams and the desires of our heart. And he says, yes, now bring those things to Jesus. Ask, like a child asks their parent. And I don't know if you have children, but I will tell you, children are very free to ask for whatever they want. In a lot of different ways. Sometimes it sounds like whining, okay. Okay or screaming, or a tantrum. Yeah, Paul says, that's true for you as adults. Listen to those things and bring those things to Jesus. Bring your requests to him. And then he encourages us to do something else as we bring our requests to him. He says, do it with thankfulness. Why is that important, right? Because those two things go together in God's peace guarding our hearts, is taking our requests to God and then thanking God as we do that. And the thankfulness here is so critical because what thankfulness is, right, is thankfulness is us looking back at our stories and remembering the ways that God has been good to us in the past and is saying to God, thank you for those things. Thank you. Thank you for the circumstances. Thank you for the gifts. And ultimately, thank you for you and what you have done for me. And what it reminds us what this practice of thankfulness reminds us of is that our God delights in giving good gifts to his children. Jesus talks about that. He says, uh, well, if you go to your dad and you ask him for a fish, is he going to give you a scorpion? No. Right? If you ask him for bread, is he going to give you a rock? No. And then Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, I love that phrase, how much more does your heavenly father give give good gifts to those who ask? That your heavenly father delights to give you good things. That Paul says, he who did not spare his own son but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? So what thankfulness does is it reminds us of the character of our loving father and that he loves giving, he loves giving good gifts to, our chil- to his children. And what that tells us is that we can trust him with our requests. That we can lay those requests before him and we can leave them with him knowing that he will do what is good for us whether or not he honors those requests. And now our asking becomes a relationship of trust of drawing us deeper into him. And what that allows us to put down is all of our anxieties that have to do with all of the ways that we're trying to get those things ourselves. So that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about them. What Paul is saying is it's, it's more than 
like an intellectual cognitive exercise. He's saying, set your hearts and your minds, feed on, meditate on these things. And what's really interesting about this list, and all the commentators will say this, is this list of virtues isn't a list specifically of Christian virtues. That if you were to open up like a book uh, of uh, Greek thinking at the time, I think they had books then. Maybe you scrolls. Yeah, you opened it up, right? Or you were meeting with like a uh, Greek philosopher, the Stoics. The Stoics would tell you, these are great virtues. You should practice them. But what Paul is saying here is not like, yeah, you know, just go and practice what is good and right, just like, just like everybody else in our world. No, he's taking these virtues, but he's Im- imbuing them with the heart of the gospel. That's what Paul is always doing. And that what he's, what he's encouraging his friends in is to, to set their minds and their hearts on what is true about them in Christ. To set their minds and their hearts on Christ himself. And what is true about Christ is that he's true. And so Paul says, think about what's true. Which means thinking about him, but also it's, it's not just thinking about Christ as if what we should be doing in our day-to-day lives is like always just thinking about Jesus and never thinking about anything else because then what we wouldn't be able to do anything else, right? But that we would let what is true about Jesus now become the lens through which we see and, and engage with our world and our culture. That the values of our world would be run through the strainer, the sieve of who God is. And that there are things that would come out of that that we would commend and we would say, those things are so good. And there are things that we would come, at, would come out of that and we would say, that's not so good. And we would set our minds on the things that are good. And this is actually really important for what happens after we engage in the process of prayer. So we take our request to God. We let them be made known to him. We thank God for who he is, what he's done for us in the past, so we're centered on his character, right? Have you ever had the experience where you do that and you're like, yes, okay, I'm so at peace. And then you leave that time and you go out into the world and all of a sudden you're just mauled by anxiety like a grizzly bear? Anybody ever have that experience? Okay. What's going on there? Well, a lot of things, okay? You have an enemy. There are all kinds of things going on there. One of the things is that uh, we struggle to set our minds on what is true. So we can have this time with the Lord where we're engaged in what's true spiritually, but then we walk out of that time and we set our minds on all of these other things, on this way of engaging in the world that has nothing to do with Jesus. And Paul says, no, keep your minds focused on what is true. See, what I often do when I leave prayer or just throughout my day, what we do, is we are always writing stories, aren't we? We're amazing storytellers. And one of the things we love to tell stories about is our future. And all the things are going to happen in our future. And all of our hopes and dreams, those desires of our hearts, they are all a part of those stories that we're writing. But what often happens when we are writing stories about our future, and this is where our anxiety gets really heightened, is that when we write those stories, okay, uh, what we're writing them about is all of the ways that those hopes and dreams become frustrated and don't come to pass. And in those stories that we write, what is usually true about those stories is that we write them as if we are alone, don't we? Isn't that what happens in your stories about the future? That no one understands, no one sees, no one cares, no one's there to help. And we usually write those stories about the future without Jesus. No wonder they're scary. And so what what Paul is saying here is, hey, Think about what's true. When you're thinking about something that's not true, uh, jump the tracks, right? Set your mind on something else, on what is true, what's true about you and Jesus. 
And so you can see now how this is a prescription for physical therapy, right? Is that Paul's, he's pulling us into this, the, of the strengthening of the way that we think and live and pray and engage in our world that brings us into maturity, that as, as anxiety comes and buffets us, as our fears come into our hearts, that we would let the peace of Jesus call the shots and guard us and say to those things, who goes there? Make them identify themselves like a sentinel watching over our hearts. And that we would let the peace of God then shape our minds, what is true, shape our minds and direct not only our prayers, but our thinking. And we just talked about what's true, right? We could go through this list of virtues and talk about all of those other things and how they help us understand and engage with our world and with the gospel. I want to talk about one other practice that Paul gives us here, and it's the practice of rejoicing. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And this is kind of a capstone for these practices that we're talking about. Because what Paul says is, as you set your minds on all of these things, what they, what they all direct us back to is who, who Jesus is. That we would rejoice in the Lord. That we would rejoy our hearts in him. think about I'm trying to think I was trying to think in this week of like what are the things that I rejoice over there's this uh, trip that my wife and I took before we had children so it wasn't a trip it was a vacation actually which is a novel thing now and uh, we went to Santa Barbara in California which is just a magical place uh, I could talk a lot about it but we we really we just enjoyed it and we came home and my wife, her favorite lane is memory lane, is what I tell her all the time. So she made a, f a photo album that we go back to and look at the pictures. And our, our daughter, Edie, loves looking at the pictures. And she wants us to tell us stories about it. And then she always asks where she is. Like, well, you weren't there yet, but it's a hard concept for you right now. So, uh, but what we do is we go through those pictures with her and we're telling her about our trip is that it's actually rejoying our hearts that we're remembering what that time was like and the joy that was there, and it brings us joy now in the present to think about the joy of the past. Tim Keller, he says it like this. He says, rejoicing in the Bible is much deeper than simply always being happy about something. Paul direct, directed that we should rejoice in the Lord always, but this cannot mean always feel happy since no one can command someone to always have a particular emotion. Right? To rejoice is to treasure a thing to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it's, it needs. So that in our, in our prayer, in our, in our presenting our request, in our thanking, in our thinking, that ultimately what we're directing our hearts toward is this act of rejoicing, of rejoying our hearts. And that can be as practical as, uh, as enjoying the joys that God has put right around you right now and rejoicing in those things, thanking him for them as you currently experiencing, experience them. That as Christians, we actually want to be a people who have hearts that have been expanded to appreciate the joys that come into our lives as we walk in them. Yes, that we would thank God for those things. But that we would also mature in this discipline of learning what it is to rejoice in the Lord in all circumstances. Because as we've talked about throughout this series, our ultimate circumstance is our union with Christ. 
And so there's always something for us to set our hearts on, to feed on, and to rejoice in. Which on a really practical level, like if you, uh, that as you read scripture in your day-to-day life, right, that that is not just about you like gaining more facts or getting to a place in that time while you're reading scripture where you say, great, now I know what to do better today. Those those are helpful things. Those come out of reading scripture also, okay? But that actually engaging with the Lord in his word is a way of coming across truths that we would hold on to and that we would take time in that time to say, oh, Jesus, this is so good. I want to like rest in that and rejoice in that. And friends, that takes time for us to set our hearts and our minds, for us to let our hearts catch up to what we know is true. And that as we practice these things, as we learn what it is to rejoice, as we learn what it is to submit our request to God, to engage our hearts in prayer, not only in the requesting, but in the thankfulness, right? As we learn to let Jesus and the paradigm of his life control and direct the way that we think and see the world, that what we're doing there is we're strengthening ourselves for this journey, uh, a journey with, with Jesus. That we're strengthening our own guard against anxiety. And then what Jesus does is he meets us there. But what is so beautiful about the gospel is that Jesus is capable of doing that regardless of our efforts, right? He invites us into the practice of it and he says, come and take this, take this referral for physical therapy and do it with me. Grow strong in it, but also know that the peace of God is able to guard your hearts beyond all understanding. Um, it's able to do that now. That you walk in that practice. We're invited to walk in that practice even now because Jesus himself is our peace. It's a peace that's not depended on, dependent on what we do. It's a peace that is ultimately dependent on him. And that is such good news for us, isn't it? And our hope and our prayer, right, for us as a, as a community is that we would be a community that grows strong in practicing the way of Jesus. That all that, all that we've talked about through the sermon series is, is we've been talking about joy the whole time, right? And if we're going to ever experience joy, dealing with our anxiety is a really important thing because joy, anxiety is a joy killer. But as we've talked about this whole time, that as we look for joy, as we look for peace, that ultimately that we would know what we're looking for is Jesus. And so, yes, the strong call of this passage and of this book as a whole is that we would submit our lives to this Jesus who came and submitted his life to death for us the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of Jesus, that we would find ourselves in him as we practice the joy of losing, yes. And that that would strengthen us as a community of joy and of peace, that we'd be agents of those things as we go out into our world. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God of peace, that you're a God who delights to make peace, between us and you that you've done that, Lord, and we praise you and look forward to the day when you bring your kingdom of peace fully here on this earth and in new heavens and a new earth. And Lord, as we walk what is sometimes a very weary road uh, toward that heavenly city, would you meet with us? Would you strengthen us? Would you mature us? Uh, Would you guard our hearts with your peace? Would you invite us into that even now as we worship you? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.